Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. If you've spent any time in Los Angeles, you've probably heard of Bernadette Irizarry. She started her branding firm, Velvet Hammer, back in 2003, and since then has developed award-winning products and experiences for several well-known brands. In this episode, Laura Fedorov and Chris Chandler talk to Bernadette about the role of UX as a change agent. Here are your hosts, Laura Fedorov and Chris Chandler. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. This is your host, Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. Today we have a very special guest with us, Bernadette Irizarry. She is the founder of Velvet Hammer, a branding agency started back in 2003. Welcome, Bern. We're so glad to have you today. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. But then I'm always excited to talk to you. I know. We were actually having such a great conversation before this podcast started, so <laughs> hopefully it'll be just as good. I know. I couldn't stop talking to you, but you guys are my favorite people, so this is going to be a good day. So just to transition right into it, you yeah. were telling us uh, your thoughts and the things that are fascinating you now lately uh, about UX as change agent. Yeah, you know, it's it's been an interesting ride. I think as UXers, we are often put in the place where we are trying to convince people about the benefits of a new product, a new service. What I'm finding, though, is as UX is going more in-house, the reality of change becomes more a part of your job, right? You've always been in the business of making deliverables and experiences. But for me, more and more, the role of getting a product to be successful is how you convince internal people to be with you and to kind of follow this vision that you have. One of the things that I've really been enjoying reading is this book called This Might Get Me Fired uh, by Greg Larkin. And I mean, Chris, you and I had that workshop with him here at Philosophy, which was fantastic. But one of the core things that he talks about is this idea of the wall of can't, right? So if you're an entrepreneur, you're out in the world, in a startup, they expect you to bring change and to disrupt. But when you're suddenly placed in an enterprise, very different story. And there are things you're going to encounter where people don't want to help you, don't see the need to help you. And the tools that you can use in UX to solve for that is critical. So what do you see as the biggest challenges? Well, quite often, everybody has agendas. And you kind of know that. And you go to school for UX, or you learn certain things, and you learn to be in the deliverables business. But being in the change agent business is a different set of skills. Part of it's going to be facilitation. Part of it's going to be stakeholder mapping. right? And it's not making the physical diagram of the stakeholders, but understanding what is motivating them. Why should they help you? What are they protecting or not protecting in the projects that you're doing? Who's going to give you air cover? One of the great concepts that he talks about is having a godfather or a godmother in your company. And what that is, is usually an executive with enough decision-making power and influence for your project, product, or service to be successful. So what that means is as a UXer, you can't be like, I want a seat at the table. There will be no banging of the desk, right? You have to be more clever and strategic for the good of your product. And one of the things that I talk about as a company for Velvet that's different, you know, we do, we basically architect better brands, businesses, and experiences. Right? That's a nice line. I like it a lot. <laughs> we <laughs> use good. it a lot. But the real point behind that is architecting a launch and architecting a product service actually occurring. It's all that background work that we do. Getting people on board, the pre-conversations, the identification of people who are putting up roadblocks or that perhaps have bad blood with your client. 
you need to know how to mitigate that. Otherwise, you're not going to get out of the gate. And, and the other part for me that's critical is sometimes people have these grand visions of what they want their product to be. But if it's not in people's bodies, if it's not in the, you know, the common culture of a company, your customer, user, audience is going to experience that. So I can promise to deliver a Nordstrom's-like experience, but if I don't have the culture of a Nordstrom's-like experience, that is going to fall short of what I've put into my digital, my mobile, my cross-channel. So understanding how true that brand promise, that interaction promise is going to be, is a big part of the conversation. And I think sometimes as UXers, people get into the idea that I'm in the business of boxes and arrows, or I'm in the business now of rapid prototyping, which we all know is sexy as hell. Who doesn't want something that you just drew on a board, thought through and research, and made a fabulous thing? Incredible value. But you have to use that to gain buy-in across the board. And there are traditional UX things that we do, and as well, just change management things. This is not rocket science. There's a lot of ways you can take this on, and we can talk about some of those techniques as well. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I think you bring up such a great point. Uh, now that I'm a consultant working on the outside again. You understand. Right, it's it's really amazing. Um, I, I tell clients all the time, yeah. right, the, 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 the most difficult problem is not the design. Right, because no, we can, because we can follow the customers, we can follow the users, yep. we can, we have the skills and the techniques to understand what they need and how we can bring a product right. uh, that satisfies those needs. The hard part is the execution mm -hmm. of the organization. Do they have totally. the vision? Are they committed to the vision? Do they have the operational chops oh, to, that's a big one. You're to right. support and bring the product to market and to actually give it life? Um, we launch products all the time here, yep. and then you know it's always like, well, okay, how are you going to market the product? Right. Right. What is your plan for the ongoing growth of you know? And growth is a big, a big new topic too. But yeah. you know, th those capabilities and and bringing that kind of change is such a challenge. Well, I think people have been arguing and asking for a seat at the table for a long time. And what I find so interesting is that every department thinks they need a seat at the table. So I wonder who's actually at the table because we're all arguing for a seat there, whether it's IT, user experience, or design. You know, those are the, the places I tend to be encountering people. But one of the, you know, there's some basic human rules, right? And I call it the, you know, don't ask me when you need it. Build the social capital up front. Your stakeholders in partnership with you need to be doing that. So marketing's not hearing about it when it's so far gone down the road right. that they're like, hey, you didn't bring me in. I could have told you that. And they may agree with where you're going, but they felt excluded and therefore have no desire to help you now. And this happens a lot with ops, right? This is classic Agile 101, DevOps, and we've seen the emergence of design ops as a conversation, so everybody's talking ops. But operations, the people who make this stuff happen, are usually the people people leave off the table and then they come to you, I'm throwing this over the wall. And then you think people are gonna be happy about that? Yeah, I mean, it's such a it is a classic problem, classic. And, and, I, and you know, and thank you for talking about some of the techniques, right? Because that's as designers, right? We have a tendency to want to not want to share until we feel that the work is at the right oh, level, my or if it's been approved, or whatever we're whatever our gating function is. Right. But that that ability that that uh, the necessity to get more feedback, even. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. those those people are going to throw a monkey wrench in your plans, right? Yes. So I know why we don't want to do it. Right. 
but, but it can be really dangerous. Oh, and 100%. It's not that hard once you overcome the hurdle of being uncomfortable. Right. If you can get your sketches out there when it's not in a high fidelity version, yeah. um, send that out and get that buy-in that you're talking yeah. about early and often throughout the process. It's, it's gonna be a much better collaboration. Yeah. You're gonna have a much higher level quality output of your yeah. product. Well, I, I think we are geared to the ta-da, particularly, and you know, all of us have done stints in agencies or, or have our own. You know, that idea that I'm gonna bring perfection, I'm going to wow you, the wow moment, the heroics, and IT has this built in, right? The IT heroics, I'm going to solve the day, we're gonna dig in. You know, one of the things that's great about it is you do get that, ta-da, I didn't know you were making this, but at the same time, there is a price to pay, both from the sustainability of a team to the trust that a client has you in you, or if you're unfortunate enough not to have the right decision maker and they just make a wrong decision. You have wasted so much energy. And if we look at business and how agility, which started in the software world, has become the buzzword. You can't pick up an issue of HBR without agility this, agility in HR in the organization. There is a change in mindset, but it takes time because you do still need to be seasoned enough to recognize I may not be able to ask for a particular CEO or CFO or even you know the head of operations because they have commitments so I have to really look at that stakeholder ask and be clear that I am understanding the value I'm bringing using their time wisely and that's respectful of any teammate right like I shouldn't waste my teammates time nor do I want them to waste mine in a conversation so there's a lot more I call it strategery yes I know the word is strategy but I call it strategery because that's what a great account director has done what a great UX leader will do what a great leader period will do that's your role right yes you're mentoring the team but you're also facilitating the best outcome for the project and the company with a bigger view and some of that's people. Here's here's a question I wrestle with all the time, which sure. is how upfront and open are you about this fact that you know you're a change agent? Is it a mm -hmm. formal thing or is it informal? Where do you find the balance? It usually comes with, well, actually, I tell people upfront, and and I and I think this is something we as designers can be a little more confident about. Design has a seat at the table. That conversation is done. People get what it is. And what we've seen in the last 10 years is only cementing that every day. But you really do need to have a conversation with your potential client, your colleague, or your peer that you trust, right? And if you're bringing me in, I want to know that you trust me, so I'm going to be very upfront with you. That's, that's kind of in the culture of Velvet. I'm from New York, very direct. I married a Dutch guy, super direct. It has <laughs> only gotten more intense, right? I will have a conversation that says, I need to know what the temperature for change is. Here are the things that we might do that may make people uncomfortable. And I need to know that I have a peer or a stakeholder who is my partner in crime. And I have had, I have had to turn away clients where I felt that chemistry was wrong. And I will tell you one of my, I don't know that it's a favorite story, but it is a frequent story I will have with clients. I was, you know, visiting with a company that was actually um, I won't even say where they were. Anyway, they had a new product. They were going to be doing a startup. And the 
leader who brought me in was very charismatic, super smart. Like I would have conversations with him and I was blown away. I was like, you think wonderfully and I'm going to enjoy our conversations because they verged on debate and discourse, right? Which is, you're like, this is going to be great. So then he brings me in to meet with his set of lieutenants. And I kid you not, the lieutenants look like a bunch of Gordon geckos, back to the slick hair. And the lead guy, and I don't know if it's like a Don Draper moment gone bad or whatever, turns to me and says, you know, we ate up our last agency. And I'm like, okay, uh, there's a reason you're telling me this. But, you know, rather than do what I probably would have done in my early days of agency, which is to dance, I was like, okay. I said, look, and I was very forthright. I am not afraid of hard work. I have an incredible team behind me, which I truly believe. I'm like, I know we can do anything. I've done a lot of things for crazy people on crazy deadlines, and we've won. But there's a reason you're telling me that. What are you trying to indicate with that comment? Because that's more interesting to have a discussion about. Is there something you want me to know when you say that? And so the would-be client who I had so much time talking to was like, well, tell her about all the money and that it's going to be okay and whatever. Backpedal, backpedal. But I was like, check mark number one. This is a problem. If you think scaring me is a good idea, we will not work well together. If you think that eating up a team is a viable way to run a team and has no sustainability, I'll be honest, Velvet Hammer is not a giant company. I don't have a room filled with 20-year-olds in the back. I have a quality, small, intimate team. I care about these people. You're not doing that. And then the last part was the fact that you think disrespecting another individual is a problem. We're not going to get along and you're going to hate me because I'm not going to let it pass. He went on to make some other questionable conversational points during the meeting around things that I had with audiences and research and disrespect the people in the user research. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And ultimately, I, I walked away from that. And the part that I didn't tell you is he was the chairman of the board of a client that I was at. And that's how I got the reference. So I knew by saying no to that client, I was probably going to lose another client in the process. And uh, you know, fast forward. I saw what came out of it, I followed the project, they didn't do anything more and had not pushed anything in a reasonable way. And I was like, whew, I avoided that bullet, but it was a scary moment, right? right. And those are the moments as a change agent you have to have. Because if you're not being upfront about expectations, they may have found a perfect partner and worked beautifully and, and create brilliant work, but part of the process is our ability to collaborate and have those safety conversations. And I did not feel, well, I felt safe because I knew I was walking away, but I don't think there would have been an opportunity for safety, which means we're not going to design and create together in the best way. So what happens when that scenario happens in-house? In-house. Well, you know, there's a couple of things you need to think about, which is if it's all about weighing where are they in the organization, how much support do you have? and who cares most about this succeeding. And you hope that there is a godfather, godmother, you have a mentor, you have a peer who can help you kind of navigate that course. Now, you do try, and in-house I would probably have not walked away because I couldn't, it was my livelihood, right? And you might try to work through, and when I'm faced with a difficult person where you don't have, like I can't just walk away, there's a little more sussing out or relationship building effort to understand because usually if someone's coming at you and this is like a therapy 101 I've had plenty of it so you're gonna get three dollars right <laughs> there you know a lot of it is there's something underneath that's driving that behavior and I will try to suss it out but there will be times when people are just resistant and you either work through them 
around them for the good of the project and you try to have a, a discourse, you also have to be conscious of that individual's context, right? There are things you have to think about from a culture perspective. Are you going to talk to them up front? Do you need somebody to talk to them from the side? I've had clients where I was working in organizations that were Japanese and one of the things is there's a lot of hierarchy and rules on who can talk to who because of the nature of, of some of those cultural corporate uh, etiquette, for lack of a better word. And so as a change agent who's been used to working in California, where it's like, hey, this isn't working, this is what we need to do, here's what's going to happen, it was difficult. I had to kind of check my usual way of working at the door and work through channels. And you learn something in every process, but like Chris said, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, I say this to clients, products are easy, people are hard. Right. They really are. And, and the better you get at it, the more successful you can be, and the more you can bring the things you care about to market. I don't do this because I love people. I mean, I like them, but you know, I do this because I love to see my stuff out in the world. I love to see what we make seen by others. Like you guys, I've had that experience where you make a product and it's in a commercial or it's on a shelf or it's in someone's hand. And you go, I made that, right? Like I made that, my team made that. Man, that's fabulous, that's why I do it. I, uh, I, I love that point about taking these opportunities inside your organization to learn and grow. One of the things uh, that, that all three of us have in common is uh, sort of a commitment to community oh, and, the, yeah. and sort of the, the stuff outside your own organization. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I know right now you're currently on the board of uh, our local chapter of AIGA. I am. I'm a little bit of a volunteeraholic. I think I need to go to some program. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I, I also founded Ladies That UX Los Angeles. You know, I have had a great time volunteering for World IA Day or even doing things at the IA Summit. You know, I think that what you get when you are working with volunteer organizations not only is a great feeling of service and contribution, but it is an opportunity to mentor others, whether that's your peer or to learn from other folks. It's an opportunity to test your skills in a safe environment because, and this is something one of my executive uh, friends on the AIGA board said is, you know, you're not getting paid for this, right? So you better love it and you better get something out of it. And what I think you get out of it is an opportunity to lead, to take on big things that you might not get depending on where you are in your career, right? I look at our president of the AIGA chapter and one of the great things is like, I have a, an audience of thousands of people that I'm dealing with. I manage a direct board of 30 individuals. I have a membership base of thousands that I'm dealing with. These are opportunities that she may not have gotten as early in her career, and she can just do that. So there's so much you get out of volunteership, and it's also that opportunity to network with your peers. And there's all these great conversations that we've heard. It's about the people you know, and you're more likely to get the job if you know someone. But it's also you can avoid things if you know someone. So, and we've had this conversation, Chris. Chris is longtime friend in peer, but I'll call him up and I'll be like, hey, Chris this is kind of strange or I have this position or I have this inkling can you help me and people generally do want to help you and it's because you have this relationship with them so I can only suggest and highly I don't even go suggest I highly recommend that everybody is doing this kind of work a it makes design more impactful across the world and B the relationships you have are the ones you take with you. We spend so much time working and thinking, why wouldn't you want to grow that ability? It, it's, it's just a no-brainer. 
Yeah, uh, this is something that I say to the, the people, the, the recent GA grads and the people oh, transitioning sure. uh, into a career in UX, that when you're looking for opportunities to grow your skills and grow your network and you, know, you have that problem at the beginning, I mean, th these organizations have an endless, a bottomless need for help, support, mm -hmm. work, and effort. And yeah. I think so, you know, on the one hand, you can demonstrate your commitment and, and your ability to, to deliver and add value. And on the other hand, I think, as you just said, it's so, so right. You also, there's always opportunities for leadership, the kind of thing that you may not be getting in your right. current role right. inside of an organization. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing is, when you talk about being of service and doing this kind of work, you also have access to incredible brands, right? Like if you're working on, and I've had the privilege of working on a company called, or it's actually an organization called Living Beyond Breast Cancer, right? You go and you either do pro bono work, you are doing interviews. So maybe you don't get to do research as part of your job in your day to day because you have a particular specialty that they want you to have. But we know that designers and UXers of today have to have cross skills. Here's an opportunity to build up a specialty in an environment that's safe, where people want you to succeed because you're volunteering on their behalf, right? We're gonna be doing actually a, a facilitation with Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. They actually are doing outreach um, to uh, Latino and black youth. So we're seeing a rise of incidences in, um, in LA amongst this community. So I'm gonna take a bunch of our AIGA board and we're gonna go do facilitation with them. And so I'm like, okay, you have a problem, which is how do you get this programming out there? And we're gonna use the skills that we have as designers and design thinking and iteration and run a workshop and series of workshops that help you come to ways that are gonna serve the community. So what does that mean? We're helping you, but you're also helping me to train up my fellow designers in these skill sets. Everybody wins. And that is a model, I think, that we, when we see it, we're purpose-driven these days. Right, it's really rewarding. And we've seen it in World IA Day. There's been workshops where they reach out to local nonprofits, mm -hmm. and by the end of the day, they have a sketch of something or an iteration of something that's hopefully usable. Um, or Lynn Boyden in her class at UCLA, she works on several nonprofit, works with several nonprofits to bring those projects into the classroom and work those out. So I think it's it's so rewarding not only to get the experience from the work, but also to give back to the community and to develop those relationships. And there's something very powerful about working with somebody on something for good, right? That power of, we just spent two hours drawing together, doing post-its, because one of the things that I love about frameworks like design thinking and a lot of these things you do in service design is it's fun, it's energizing, and it shows the power of design work to build empathy, to create solutions that is much more interesting than writing documents all day. And getting that into people's hands is something we can all really enjoy. I do want to mention that Philosophy has a workshop coming up, isn't that right, where you're reaching out to nonprofits? Uh, yeah, we're oh. going to be doing a series of uh, workshops, six weeks, build a product. We're calling it Product for Good, uh, and you can find a link to that on our Twitter feed or on our website, philosophy.is. Fantastic. I'm going to be clicking.
<laughs> I hope so. Tell us a little bit more about Velvet Hammer. First of all, why the name Velvet Hammer? I will tell you, I was in an interview with a company. It was quite funny. And I was describing the way in which, at that point I was early in life, I was a producer slash project manager, and I was describing the way I managed teams. And I was like, well, you know, sometimes it's about massaging and, you know, working with artists and designers is very much like working with IT. Sometimes you really need to be kind about it, and then sometimes you got to be harsh. I do a lot of clapping. I apologize to the sound people. Um, but he said, you're a velvet hammer. And I was like, oh, yes, I am. I did not know that. So then I went and looked it up, and there was actually a book uh, by a woman named Faith Baldwin. And the first instance I could find of Velvet Hammer was in, I want to say it was in the 50s. She wrote a bodice scripper is the best way to describe it. And there was a woman in the town, and she was actually not very nice. And uh, she kind of ran the town, and she was oppressing her daughter-in-law after the husband died. And they called her a Velvet Hammer a Satin Steamroller. And I was like, oh, whatever that is, my <laughs> sub-company is going to be Satin Steamroller. And I, I really do think it, it speaks to the way we're doing it. And I actually, sometimes I joke with my clients, they're like, Burn, you brought the hammer today. I got the hammer. I'm like, yes, you did, because it's good for all of us. But, you know, you also have to be gentle with people. So I think it encompasses how I like to think about the world. Well, I now know, after hearing that, that if I start my own company, it will be called Amiable Bully. <laughs> we should just have a whole bunch of things like, like a generator with the two sides and see what people come out with. Exactly. And so what are you up to these days at Velvet Hammer? What's interesting is a lot of our work has been taking us into change management, which is a surprise for me. I mean, I shouldn't act like I'm surprised by my career, but I am, right? Like people let you do things when you're authentic that I just laugh about. I'm like, oh, you're going to let me build your color system? Okay, right, uh, fine. Uh, but with change management, one of the things that I'm finding is there's a huge push internally with transformations, right? So agile transformation, digital transformation, and the ability to actually create compelling conversations, do facilitation, do communications, create websites, create tools that actually let that change stick is, is something that people are asking me to do. And it has always been a part of my practice as it relates to product. But I always had a component like, okay, we're going to do this stakeholder stuff. Uh, but we formalized that. Uh, and what I find is most interesting is in agile transformations particularly, you are seeing that emergence of, oh my gosh, you're asking me to change how to do my work. It also has some digital thrown in it. And there's a whole bunch of language, right? A lot of nomenclature that people get thrown by. So we enjoy helping out with that. And then it also lets us flex our muscles. And one of my beliefs is that just because it's internal, and I won't say the word I usually use. It doesn't have to be crummy. It's the cleaned up version of that. Mm. Right? Thank you. Yeah. There could be young children listening to this I, podcast. I figured in case you had any eight-year-olds who are our UXR this listeners. non-explicit material <laughs> here. Non-explicit. You won't have to bleep me out. But it usually sounds a lot more New York. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you think your approach at Velvet Hammer is different than some of your competitors? I do think the emphasis on stakeholders is pretty high. Um, I do think the nature of how we push for uh, real testing of concepts fast and early. I do think the other thing for me is I have no issue with agility. And I know people are really pressing on that. And you can see uh, a fair bit in Twitter you know, that we're not leaving time for the incubation and the generation. But I honestly do believe that that's not the spirit of agile and that there is no real 
discord there. I think it's all about can you have a real conversation that is creating shared understanding? That's what UX has always been around and about. And yes, I have made many deliverables for many weeks on months on end. And I'm not saying they were valuable, but I'm saying you can get there in a faster pace. Not to the point, we already talked about, I don't want teams on death marches. That's not interesting to me. But uh, I do think there's a lot of noise that is not true to what the manifesto intended and not good for anybody. Yeah, I mean, you hit one of my UX pet peeves when a UX designer will say, well, I need more time to think. And I, I want to say, you and everybody else, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing special about us as UX people that we deserve time to think. I mean, the, the developers also could use time to think. Uh, UI designers could use time to think. Product managers could use time to think. Project managers could use time to think. So it's not that I'm against time to think. I'm against the privileging of, yes. the, of the, as a UX designer, it's more important that I get time to think than anybody else on well, the team. Whenever it starts with as a, and I, I'm with you. The privilege button is a hot button for me. And I also have a conversation with teams that, that, that has to start from this place. You can have that time, but we need to understand the outcome and the business need that is driving it. And you need to be able to make a case for your why we need to do a certain activity. And I believe if you are a strong communicator and you build up rapport with your team, you can, and rightly so, should stand up for it you know what, I cannot just whip out something in a day, right? If you are, and it's also the maturity of your organization. I don't think anybody or everybody, and particularly an enterprise, is ready to take on a Google Sprint on their first go with Agile. You can't, I mean, and it's hard for me. There are times I'm working in enterprise and I'm like, I could have this up in three weeks. And I know I could have it, I can have it up in two. But I know that they can't move at that speed. Right. And if you can't have that conversation as a team that is true to what it is to get by and to get onto somebody's calendar, then don't set up this premise that we're going to run so fast. And agility is not about fast, right? Agility is about responsiveness. Those are different things. People believe that it's going to cost them less and they're going to get stuff faster. And Jeff Sutherland says, I'm going to get 2x to 4x productivity, blah, blah, blah. All fantastic and true. You can get that kind of productivity gain. But there's work you have to put in. You have to put in technical agile practices. You have to put in lean UX practices so that you're delivering on the promise of value. And these can be all buzzwords, but if people don't do the homework and they just pick the parts of the manifesto that support their agenda, agenda for cheaper and faster, then you serve no one and you get a crummy product on the other side. So true. Um, what um, I'm curious, just to we talk a lot about things other than design. Yeah. <laughs> From a design perspective, what are the, some of the problems or things that you're that you've been challenged with lately? You know, I, I think one of the interesting things I've been dealing with is we have an incredible wealth in LA of designers. We you know we have lots of programs that are are graduating individuals, and I love them and they have great skills. But what I find is we need to be making more opportunities for folks to come in. I mean, they're green. Folks are green when they come in. And I feel like we ask or people recruit without the expectation that you're going to train someone up. So while I may have someone who comes to me and has 
great sketch ability, great envision ability. There are holes in their practice that have not been filled. So that has been a challenge for me in kind of baking up an individual so that they're prepared to go on to the next thing. Um, you know, a, a concrete example for me was, you know, I think a lot of people out there are just lacking user research skills. They go into an organization that doesn't have a strong practice and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to need to help you. Or I have individuals who come in and they want to be full stack, but I'm like, you don't understand how to look at a line of code. And I'm not saying you need to do that as a designer, but I think it helps you to, to understand any material that you're working in. And it doesn't help. I went to sculptures. You know, I went to school for sculpture. I can weld. I can do furniture making. I can do stuff on paper. I can make a prototype. All this is stuff that helps me create understanding for all of us, and I can draw. So that has been challenging, like what I would call leveling out people. And then I think the other, the big thing for me on design is creating a broader understanding of what I believe design is, right? It's, and, but this is a challenge for, I think, all designers, right? Unless you come out of traditions like product design. I don't just make pretty. Right? And it's very tempting for people to get attached to the keynotes and the PowerPoints I can make. Oh my gosh, Burns going to make a deck for you. It's going to be fantastic. And yes, I can do that, but that's not the value of what I deliver. It's that thinking and the conversation that we do up front. Sure. So what advice would you give to designers that are just getting started? Keep learning and really embrace that, right? Because I think people forget there, and I don't know, maybe, I don't, maybe I'm being crazy. You should be going to Girl Develop It on the weekend and taking a class in something you don't know. You should be looking for that next project. And as we've talked about a lot in today's conversation, you should be volunteering. Um, the other thing that I would say is you really need to, and I, I talk about this a lot with my mentees, do not expect and assume social capital that you do not have. Right? Talking to a person once at a meeting does not make them your friend. Build relationship and get out of your way to build those relationships. Have conversations and try to create meaning because we do not want for meetups in this town. We do not want for opportunities to connect, but we do lack real connection. So the ways in which you do that is working with people showing value, thinking about the person you're talking to and trying to deliver meaning to them as opposed to I'm getting collected and here's my card, you know. So take that class in improv that makes you comfortable standing up in front of people. Just do it. And my other question that I love to ask is what would you like your legacy to be? Oh, I have a legacy. He's eight years old. He's amazing. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if there's anything that I would like to do, and this goes back to a kind of personal story, I want designers to know and creative people to know they can make a living at this, right? My parents, my mom's from the Dominican Republic, my dad's a New Yorkan, um, you know, I'm one and a half generation, if you will, New Yorker. And one of the things that my parents did when I would draw and I had skills as a young person, I was, I was an artist, they would say, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer and that's the thing you do on the side. Design is the thing you do on the side. And I just kept making choices that were moving me more towards a creative career. Right? I worked and interned at JP Morgan and I was like, I love business, but I do not like financial products. This isn't, I'm not wowed by this. And I want designers and creatives and people to know 
you can survive, you can live well, you can have an enjoyable career doing what you're passionate about. So for me, it's I want people to be passionate about their work, and if I could have any legacy, I want people to do that. And that's why, particularly in GDI, a lot of what I do is help people transition into UX. Because they're like, I don't like what I'm doing. I'm like, then don't keep doing it. And here we're going to help you stop doing it and find something you love. Because life is short and you spend a lot of time of it at work. You better like it. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're so happy to have you on the show. Thanks Thank for you for having me. I love talking with you guys anytime. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE.is.